Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. And uh, I am thrilled to have with us today uh, a special guest joining us from Paris. We don't get many guests from Paris, Kobus, so I think this is a special treat. Uh, Shannon Wong, who is uh, an environmental economist, also a policy analyst at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, otherwise known as the OECD, uh, is joining us today to talk about a special report. Uh, good, uh, I guess it's the afternoon for you there, uh, Shannon. It is. Good afternoon, everyone. Well, uh, it's my pleasure to join you at the show today. Thank w- you for inviting me. Wonderful. Well, we're excited to talk uh, to talk to you about the the new report that's coming out from the OECD. We're going to take a little bit of a, a change in format this week. And normally, what we do, uh, Shannon, if you're a, a regular listener of the program, we, we we basically address three of the key issues of the week in China-Africa relations. But we thought this week it would be an opportunity to really delve into uh, a particular issue related to. It, environmental sustainability as it relates to the Chinese and to Africans, and sometimes to both, uh, really to coincide with this uh, this report that's come out from the OECD. So we're going to focus in on this kind of a feature story today and then kind of step back from the day-to-day news. We'll be back again next week, of course, with more of the kind of more topical stories. So, uh, Shannon, you uh, you and your team in Paris have put together a report called Putting Green Growth at the Heart of Development. Uh, before we get to that and the details of the report, could you do me a favor and really just very, very briefly give us a 15-second, 20-second introduction as to what the OECD is? Because it's one of these international non-governmental organizations. There are so many of them out there, uh, and people are, may not be entirely familiar with what the mission of OECD is. Sure, um, I will do my best. So maybe I can start with the slogan of the OECD, Better Policies for Better Lives. And uh, basically that summarizes what we do. Um, The OECD basically promotes policies that will aim to improve the economic and social well-being of people around the world. And we try to achieve that from many different aspects. We work on economic policies, industrial policies, environmental policies, and a part of the OECD where I work, we mainly focus on development policies. Okay. And for my daily job, it's my, my daily job is about integrating the environmental sustainability into the development policies. And as I will brief you through the report, I can tell you a little bit more of what that, that really means. Okay. And so far at OECD, we have 34 member countries. Uh, majority of them are industrialized countries, but we are also starting to get more and more involved with emerging economies and developing countries. And as you may know, our Secretary General is from Mexico, so that's really a good sign that the organization is really broadening its scope to try to be uh, as global as we can. And we are really working towards involving as many uh, developing countries as possible at this stage. And so engagement, uh, engagement is one of the key agenda of this organization right now. Okay, but just to be clear, China is in fact not a member of the OECD, correct? That's right. China okay. is not a member. Okay, so let's now move on to, to the report. And before we kind of get into the weeds of, of what this report says, uh, if you could just you know, give us, uh, you know, again, some of the, the key highlights of the report and what you are recommending. And then what Cobus and I are going to do is kind of take a couple of the key points that we kind of identified uh, and, and kind of see if we can test them out and see what, you, what the response is. So go ahead and, and tell us about putting green growth at the heart of development. And again, 
do what you can do to try and keep it in the context of, of both China and Africa. All right. So um, maybe just quickly, I guess many people would question what Green Girls is. Uh, is this a new concept? What is the relationship between Green Girls and sustainable development? And, you know, uh, also put it into the context of any other buzzword we see these days, green economy, low carbon, climate resilient girls. I, I think I just want to put it into a very simplified words. Green girls is mainly about a type of economic development that takes into account the value of the natural capitals, which has not been previously prized in any of the economic models. Um, so just like um, the materials we use for building um, all the human capital costs, the natural capital also has a price. And if you take that into account, that actually increases the production cost. And the, the less available the natural resources becomes, the higher the price becomes. And that makes the production cost more expensive. So basically, Green Growth is such a way to help policymakers at the cabinet office and the contractors in the local government to understand the important role the natural capital actually plays in any functions um, their activities are involved in. And I think that's the main message we try to get across is if we want to have an economic growth model that can be sustained over time, we really have to take into account the price of natural capital. We have to put a value on that and we have to take that into consideration. And what we, we believe is by doing that, green girls can really help the human well-being to have a more sustainable future. Um, Shannon, can, can, sorry to interrupt you. Um, can you give us an idea of how that would actually happen in real life? Like when, you know, if, if a country is trying to take, you know, take water, soil and so on into account, um, how do they actually do, how do they make those sums and how, how do they, how does it affect their, their kind of finances? Um, there are some types of natural accounting framework of natural uh, assets already available. Uh, at last year's Real Plus 20 conference, many countries have reached some consensus of introducing this common accounting framework into their national economic system to ensure that not GDP is not only GDP is used as a way of indicating the economic performance, but also on top of that to take into account the natural depletion rate, which basically is a negative thing to the GDP growth rate or some of the improvements in the natural capital which will become plus in the GDP indicator. Let, let me uh, ask you, Oh, go ahead. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Keep going. No, please, please. I, I guess, you know, I, I had a difficulty reading the report and because the you, from the from the report, and I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily the position of the OECD, but the 100 pages that I read, and I, I admit I did not read the whole thing because it's rather long, um, the onus you kept putting on uh, for sustainable development on developing countries. You did suggest that there is a role for the international community to support uh, developing uh, countries in their efforts to become more green. Um, but when you look at actually the carbon footprints and the emissions and who's generating mm -hmm. The, 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 the damage to the environment, um, it's predominantly OECD member states. Uh, you know, well over half of the world's carbon emissions come from OECD members. And yet when we talk about in the context of Africa, um, you know, the carbon footprint of the average African, maybe with the exception of South Africa, 
um, is a mere fraction. And I guess what I thought was interesting was this whole 100-plus page report doesn't talk about the interlinking, the interdependence that the ecosystem has between developed countries and developing countries, and instead gave 100 pages of policy recommendations for developing countries without making any burdens on developed economies for sustainable growth, which is really where the environmental degradation is occurring fastest. Um, I agree with you, but let me let me just make a quick clarification. As we indicated at the beginning of the report, that this report is actually a companion piece to the previous OECD Green Growth Strategy, which was published two years ago, mainly looking at how OECD countries themselves should be multi-disciplined to sustain their economies through green growth and how they could more sustainably use the natural resources they are importing from developing countries. So this is really to complement that piece of work, mainly looking at how developing countries themselves can become greener. Of course, as you have said, the ecological footprint in developing countries currently is much lower, but you should also know that they are the biggest victims of climate change. Their agricultural sectors are the productivities are decreasing because of the changing climate vulnerabilities. And as the population growth and the economic growth rate increases in many of the African countries, they will also be facing um, the challenge of energy security. They will be having higher and higher greenhouse gas emission rates over, over time. And their urbanization rate will also put big pressures on water and energy and the sanitation supplies. So all of that means that green growth is equally important and relevant to developing country context. And of course, there's an interdependency issue. Many of the resources OECD countries are consuming today come from developing countries. So that's one dependency. But also developing countries themselves have to depend on the global climate to, to ensure that they are, the impact on their economy is minimal. So there's a double-way um, dependency. And I think we did try to address this point in our reports to show that, you know, green growth is not a luxury, it's a way to achieve global security for all of us and not just for, for OECD or for developing countries alone. And, and Kobus, I'll, I'll, I'll let you have the mic. I've got 25 questions burning in my head right now. But uh, <laughs> wow. um, I, I just I feel like there was a little bit of a disconnect. And this is, I think, going to Kobus's question earlier about, you know, kind of the, the difference between the recommendations in the report and what actually happens on the ground. Let me, for example, kind of state, you know, three of the of the of the, of the recommendations that you put forward. And again, we're, we're thinking about this in the context of Africa and China. Uh, equitable and efficient tax systems is what you one of the recommendations. Phase out environmentally harmful subsidies and free and open trade for environmental products. You know, equitable and efficient tax systems is. Please, if you could name me one developing country that has an equitable and an efficient tax system. Sorry, um, are you asking me? Or I yeah, I mean, I guess I'm trying. No, 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 I'm asking you because what I, I guess my feeling was there was a disconnect between this report and what I, what I see as the realities and the facts on the ground. That is, one of, what, one of the, the, you know, the big problems, not only in the developing countries, but we see in Greece and Spain, there's a completely dysfunctional tax system. Um, but I have yet to live in a developing country that has an equitable tax system. And to make a okay. suggestion like that, um, just as one of ten list of things to do, is massive. 
And it, and it kind of suggests to me a, a disconnect between what is possible and what is actually attainable and what is kind of pie-in-the-sky idealism. Um, so when we look at you know, phasing out of environmental harmful subsidies. You know, Nigeria tried to do that two years ago mm-hmm. and was mm-hmm. met with riots in the streets. So sure. I'm just not sure that these are rooted in things that are actually practical for uh, for developing countries to actually implement. Sure. Um, in the report, what we are trying to do is really to identify some relevant policy instruments or policy tools to to get some of developing countries started. I fully agree with you that it's equally it's extremely challenging for developing countries to have an equitable tax system because in many of the OECD countries with much higher capacity of the government they could not really achieve that and for developing countries when the capacity is a lot lower it's even more difficult when the informal economy is taking a large percent of the economic sectors collecting tax is not the the, the easiest or the, the feasible thing to do, but at least uh, we should start from somewhere. And in reality, we did collect some good case studies to show that, for example, the taxi- taxation system on forestry management in Cameroon, the water pollution tax in Colombia, these are actually working, even though some of them are at small scale, maybe only in the city level, not national level, but at least there are some good indicators to show that uh, with certain elements in place, a government could possibly to get some policies started. And of course, the, the case that you mentioned in Nigeria, the fossil fuel subsidy removal, was not really a successful one, but we did indicate that there are actually lessons we have learned from this policy informing new policies or uh, reforming existing policies. We have come up with some good lessons that we believe if you take this into account when you introduce new policies, you could actually avoid some of the current failures we have seen, for example, in Nigeria. Shannon, I was wondering um, what you thought of new, uh, you know, the, the, the Chinese government's approach to, to green development, which on the one hand, you know, obviously they are, they are really, particularly in, in green electricity, they're, they're really putting in a lot of, of solar plants and wind plants and they're actually leading the world in, in, in installing these, but they're also leading the world in installing coal-fired plants. So they, they're kind of weirdly growing in a green direction and in the least green direction possible. Um, so I was wondering, you know, kind of how, what you think of that in the first place. And in the second place, how you put green development into the context of economic growth, particular, particularly in the cases of the developing world where countries are demanding very high levels of economic growth in order to get them, you know, to get their populations into the middle class. Right. Um, people always ask what's the difference between green development and economic growth. I think if you put it in a sentence that my mother could understand, it's basically the difference between having 9% GDP growth for 10 years or having 5% GDP growth for 50 years. Um, I think we all see that the result of 5% GDP growth for 50 years can easily get majority of the population into the middle class. But 9% of the GDP growth in China, what we have seen for the past decades, only managed to get a very small percentage of people into middle class. So that's what I see a simple way of explaining these two different tracks of growth paradigm. But in the case of China, I think you are right. Yes, we do have two tracks of 
energy development model. On one hand, we are building coal-fired power plants. I think the daily rate is maybe five to seven coal-fired power plants a day. But then we also see a significant increase in the solar energy installation, in the wind turbine installation um, in the Gobi Desert. So, I mean, in general, I think the trend is good. The government do see a big role to be played by renewable energy sector in the long-term energy security in reducing the energy import from foreign countries. But, of course, to meet the high level of demand, uh, high level of consumption from the Chinese consumers, it is impossible to only rely on renewable energy in the short term. So we have to have a transitional period that renewables and conventionals are developing at the same time. And, de- and gradually we see a, 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 a reverse of the trend that renewables take over and conventional ones slowing down. Um, maybe do, you really, you have- do you really see that happening in the next 25 years, the next generation? I mean, in countries like, I mean, I I don't know where you could possibly see that trend taking hold in the developing world. I I, I strongly believe this could happen. But where? How? They can't afford it. I mean, the price per unit of electricity of of renewable is still vastly, vastly higher. I'm just curious where, where, what precedent you see for that. Not really. Actually, the price, the, the per unit price, per, per unit of electricity generated from solar energy price in China is almost the equivalent to the, the per unit price generated from the conventional energy. There's a, there's a big drop in price. And in many of the Scandinavian countries, you do see that from renewable energy, it, the price is even lower. So there are certainly many opportunities. But and it just needs persistent govern, government policies to keep giving uh, the, the investors and consumers confidence to invest in these technologies. But scale... I think the government... Oh, sorry. No, go, go sorry, I, I, I just want to say the government policy is the most crucial thing because they are the ones giving confidence to investors. And if investors do not have this kind of government, gov- long-term government policy uh, as a guarantee, it's hard for them to, to, to see where the future trend will be. But I think the Chinese government did give a very clear indication that renewable energy in the long term is the way to go. That's why you have seen emerging in the solar installation, wind installation in the past five years after the economic crisis. But isn't China only able to do that because the government is, 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 in, is subsidizing that with huge, huge investments? Uh, so much so that the fact that they've been cited by the World Trade Organization for dumping, uh, you know, illegally subsidized solar panels to the rest of the world. Um, the fact is, is that a city like Beijing or a city like Kinshasa, you know, 11, 12 million people, both with high energy needs, Kinshasa is very hot, Beijing is very cold, um, cannot be sustained by, you know, by, by renewable, which is why they're building five coal-fired power plants every day. Of course, renewable energy alone will not solve the issue. We also need energy efficiency. We need other types of policy measures. But that's where but it gets yes. expensive, though, isn't it? I mean, I mean, for a country like the DRC or Zambia or, or Cameroon, um, these, it, I'm, just, I'm just trying to understand what the, you know, for our, our, our listeners in Africa who are trying to kind of contextualize this report and see how it applies to them, I'm trying to understand how can they walk away from this report thinking it's actually attainable. Uh, let's take an example of energy, of fossil fuel subsidy. Um, today in Africa, I don't have the exact number in my mind, but I'm sure it's in the, in the, in the, in, in the level of uh, hundreds of billions of money has been spent on 
fossil fuel subsidies. And this majority of them are artificial pricing. So basically government uh, reducing the price compared to the production cost. And if we manage to use that and invest that in renewable energy, energy efficiency, or green agriculture sectors, we can certainly harvest uh, um, very immediate benefits in, in, in short period of time. Similarly, um, many of the production methods, for example, in agricultural sector today in Africa, is very inefficient. It doesn't really require a lot of investment to actually improve the productivity and make it more climate resilient. So I think there are a lot of low-hanging fruit that government can easily pick up. Um, most of the time, the actions are limited because we do not really know what are the consequences or because our neighboring countries have not taken the first step. So we are waiting for others to show us the way forward. But what I want to share with you is recently we've been working quite closely with the Ethiopian government on reflecting their green growth strategy because Ethiopia, though it's a low-income country, um, the former prime minister was highly committed in making sure as the country developed into a middle-income country, the greenhouse gas emission over time is actually decreasing. So they identified many low-hanging fruit that they could achieve without uh, putting extra burden on the public expenditure. So I think it's, it's achievable. Yes, please. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Um, it's actually, it's great that you mentioned Ethiopia. Um, Ethiopia is obviously is, is, is busy building a very big, um, hydroelectric scheme. And I was one, and you know, one of several in Africa. And obviously some people see hydroelectricity as a, as a potential green growth strategy and others really don't. And others see it as, as very bad for the environment. I was wondering where the OECD comes down on hydroelectricity and it's especially on the kind of massive hydroelectric projects that are being planned for the Democratic Republic of Congo? Um, I'm not an energy expert, so I wouldn't want to comment on the OECD's position on the large hydro. But what I could tell you is when I visited Ethiopia last November, we did have a very interesting discussion with the different government uh, officials on the large hydro. Uh, Some of them are being constructed already, others are in the pipeline to be constructed in Ethiopia. I think the main message that we are trying to pass to the government is uh, it's important to use renewable energies and it's of course important for the country to become self-dependent from other energy sources outside the country, but they should also equally looking at the environmental implications of this large hydro um, uh, large hydro plants because first, many of the local indigenous populations have been uh, displaced because of the construction. And second, it has a high biological uh, cost as well. So what we don't want to do is to solve one environmental problem and to create another environmental problem. And in this case, and the economic policy instruments like strategic environmental assessment should be applied in helping the government to make a sensible decision the size of the hydro plant and where the hydro plant should be located. I think, I think some countries are facing challenges of narrowly focusing green growth as a climate change issue by focusing only on climate mitigation. But in fact, the green growth is much broader than climate change. Biodiversity, desertification, the air, the water pollution issues should also be taken into account when you go forward with your green actions.
You know, when uh, when I lived in the DRC for, for many years, we didn't have electricity for about, I'd say, it was on average about six to seven hours a day. Um, and that would that would be pretty regular. And, uh, you know, people, that's just the way that life is. Um, one of the biggest constraints to economic growth in Africa, of course, is a steady, reliable power supply. You can't have industry. You can't, you know, hospitals can't be powered and whatnot. So when you talk about you know, making a rational decision on the part of African leaders. And if you weigh, you know, long-term, and this is one of the issues you bring up in the report is, you know, short-term gains versus Mm long-term costs. Um, You know, if you're an African politician or even a Chinese politician, because this is exactly the the gamble the Chinese made, uh, it's not paying off in many cases now for the Chinese because they're choking on their air. But, um, you know, you need to satisfy your constituents today. You have people who don't have power today. You don't have hospitals that can't be built. So you know what? If I'll solve the environmental problems tomorrow if I can get a reliable power system today. I just wonder how the recommendations that you put into the report, you address this repeatedly throughout the report about the short-term gains versus long-term costs. But, you know, this is again where it's a fair accusation from my point of view to say, well, it's very easy for you, the OECD, to sit in Paris and tell us what we should do when the realities on the ground here, and you know from living in China, are very, very complicated. How, when you talk to, to governments about these recommendations, how do you overcome that, that objection? Um, perhaps we're actually approaching this issue from a different perspective. I think our report is actually trying to highlight short-term cost versus long-term gains, because to many of the government, short-term is expensive, even though long-term we can actually harvest a lot of these benefits. But but just let me try to, to give you my personal view on this. Mm-hmm. I think um, we have seen many examples in real life that actually this is achievable in the short-term. And of course, countries like China, who have which has much higher economic capitals and social um, abilities, we could do green growth rather easily, but in African countries where the economic capital is low, where the social abilities are low, um, maybe doing green growth is a much harder choice for them to make. But what we, what we have seen is in some countries there are experimental activities that are taking place and some of them are successful. In Ethiopia, for example, the forest regeneration in regions has already boosted livestock productivity and increase the income of the herders in the short term. So these are, these are really good and concrete examples. And on top of that, what we are trying to do is through the communication and the dialogue we have with the international community is to help developing countries with the short term green growth transition if there's going to be an increase in their cost of economic production in the short term because they chose more sustainable production method that the donor agencies may be able to provide some financial support to actually cover this extra cost. So this is the idea what we try to bring is yes, green growth should be an agenda owned by the developing countries, but in the short term, they can actually receive international support which to help them with a smooth green growth transition period. Um, one of the issues that came up repeatedly for me when I was reading the report is the issue of corruption. Um, obviously, in the report, you mentioned, uh, you know, the need for, for improved governance. Um, but, you know, what, what you frequently see in Africa is that um, 
in, in lots of different issues, including uh, biodiversity and, you know, re rehabilitation of, of environments and so on, is that corruption tends to cut these efforts off at the knees. And frequently, you know, kind of, you find um, any kind of um, certification process or, you know, licensing process to get the real people, the local communities to, you know, access to the in, to environmental resources is frequently uh, um, undercut by corruption. Um, I was wondering, you know, how you think about corruption in, in, in making these recommendations and what kind of ideas the OECD and, uh, you know, in, in your writing that you had in uh, how countries should overcome this problem? You are, you are, you are very correct that the corruption is a huge uh, um, uh, challenge or bottleneck for many countries to achieve sustainable use of natural resources. These are the case in the conflict states, uh, in many of the fragile states. Uh, and that's what we try to emphasize is unless you can get the governance right, unless you can put in place the, the correct property rights systems, it's, it's difficult for some of the policy mechanisms we try to promote work or at least work for the poor people uh, in the near term. So what we are trying to, to promote is if you want to do payment for ecosystem services, for example, and if you want the local communities to benefit from this, at least to start working on your property rights systems and try to engage the, 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 the vulnerable and the poor people in your initial discussion, empower them, make sure they know what they are signing themselves up to, and also to boost their ability to negotiate a contract which works in favor uh, to them. So these are some of the recommendations we, or some of the lessons learned from the existing payment for ecosystem service uh, programs we have seen in many of the Latin American countries. And then we are also working together with the donor community to see how we could actually integrate the governance aspect into the aid to support in environment in many of the developing countries. Because for the past, uh, governance has, also, has always been treated as a standalone topic with donors coming to a developing countries try to help the government to, to, to become less and less corrupt. But in fact, it is difficult to work on issues like that. It is more efficient if you look at governance issues or reduce corruption issues in a context of a more specific sector or thematic objectives. So by linking the governance and natural resource management together to make it become one topic, you actually see much... Um, dramatic improvement in many of the developing countries um, in, in tackling the corruption issues. And also, you may be aware there's actually an international initiative as well on transparency, and that initiative has also been working towards addressing the governance issues in natural resource management, especially in extractive industries for quite a long time. So we, we have seen there are many positive uh, initiatives out there and the donor agencies are working towards on this agenda and, and developing countries themselves as well. They are, they are awakened now. They, they would like to tackle these issues and the poor people are demanding more rights. So all of these are working towards the right uh, direction. Well, I think it's interesting that you talk about uh, the link between governance and aid in, in part because what we're seeing now is dramatic cuts in, in aid budgets from OECD member states in light of the economic crisis in Europe and in the United States. Uh, and you're also seeing the surge of, you know, from, from what we've seen in the statistics, you know, China's uh, investments in Africa over the past 10 years have far exceeded that of the World Bank and the IMF. 
so now countries have a choice of who they want to go to, and if they want to avoid those sensitive governance issues, they can get funds now from other sources that may not have what people call the no strings attached. So I think it's interesting that that this is still, uh, you know, an idea that's going forward because it's getting more complicated for donor states to impose that and link it to aid when, in fact, uh, more governments have choices to avoid that linkage if they want to. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up the issues of Chinese investment in Africa. Um, We've been trying to work towards understanding better of the Chinese government's behavior in in investment in Africa, and especially in understanding the kind of conditions they are attaching to, you know, to what extent they actually use environmental impact assessment in their investments in I don't think it's very many, to be honest with you. (laughs) I think they're just basically signing a check and saying, you do what you want. (laughs) But, But what we did here, interestingly, is the investors are becoming more and more interested in in, in understanding their in environmental implications. What inv- the reason is because Chinese investors the are is be- more interested? Yes. Oh, interesting. The reason, the reason is the investors are also long-term planners. The investors are not politicians. They don't have a four-year term. They want their business to be there for a longer period of time. They want this business to be sustainable. And in order for this to be sustainable, they need to have a sustainable source of resources over long term. So they don't want to harvest all the resources in Africa in one night. They want them to be there, to be regenerated, and to become a sustainable source over the next 30, 50 years. Really? So I think, I think, I think it's changing, and I think there has been this fixed image of how Chinese investment has been like in Africa. But I think this trend is certainly changing, and as investors, as the, the current generation of the managers in the Chinese companies are also changing. You know, many of them are westernized, and they understand the issue of environmental sustainability. I think, I think we will see maybe more positive trend in the next five to ten years. I'm confident, not just because I'm Chinese. Wow, you know, Shannon, we need to have you on the show more often because you are a breath of optimism. Do you know that? And I got to say, have you seen our Facebook page by any chance at facebook.com/slash/ChinaAfricaProject? Have you been and seen that? We have about eighty thousand followers right now, and I can guarantee you, there's about four of them may agree with you on that. <laughs> I mean, it's just. Well, I, 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 I will try to come to speak to you more often I, to make no. sure the other eighty thousand people will be following this idea too. <laughs> Listen, Gobis, I mean, this is not a perspective that we hear very often because what we hear yes. mostly is, you know, the Chinese are the biggest assholes in the world when it comes to the environment. <laughs> they don't care about their own country, and they certainly don't care about our continent. Is what they, you know, that's the that is definitely the theme and the meme that we have on our Facebook page. Yeah, that's a stereotype. I think, um, I th- I think it's a very oversimplified stereotype, but it, but it is one that that is pretty strong at the moment. But you know what? You know, Cobus, and you know, we we've we've just come off of a couple weeks talking about Ghana, and we've talked about the gold mines, and we've talked about how you know one of the lasting impacts of Ghana of of Chinese illegal gold mining in Ghana was the massive environmental destruction that took place. And, and, and part of that is that this is not a government-controlled entity. These are independent entrepreneurial migrants that are making their way all over Africa, and, and they're just trying to scrape a living together. So their environmental considerations are going to be very different than, say, CNUC or CNPC or any of these big state-owned corporations. What do you think, Kobus? 
Well, I think in that case, it comes down to governance within the African countries and, and run by African governments, um, which I think relates back to, you know, kind of the greater governance, the greater need for governance that Shannon also highlighted in her report. Um, you know, it, it does come back to African governments making their own systems work and keeping in, you know, kind of having the personnel to keep an eye out to see what's actually going on in their, you know, in their, like, rural provinces. Um, yeah, so I think it, it you know, it, as, as African governments become richer and more, more efficient, you know, hopefully that will develop, but we don't know whether, whether it will. I mean, richer and more efficient don't always go together. Yeah, not, not necessarily. Not necessarily. And also that wealth is not necessarily spread around. I mean, we've seen the concentration mm. of wealth in Nigeria, uh, you know, pretty close to the top. Shannon, um, you know, we've been pretty tough on you in part because we, you know, I, I come from a very cynical point of view on both the NGO world and as well as, you know, the broader donor community in part because mm-hmm. I have not seen after 50 years of engagement in Africa that the West, through a trillion dollars of aid and, you know, countless reports like, like yours, has had a dramatic effect on changing or improving people's lives. Um, you know, I, I, Bill Gates and a lot of other people, and I'm sure you would, would argue to the contrary, which is why I love these discussions. But it's just, you know, it, it just doesn't seem like that there's a connection there. So I really do appreciate, and I'm, I'm being very genuine here, you know, you presenting a, a different point of view on that and actually some optimism because I think it's healthy for our audience to not always hear the negatives and that there are some very, very important positive trends, even if they are starting in, you know, on a micro level or on a local level rather than a national level. I think I think we have sometimes, we, sometimes I think we need to be, a little bit relaxed with this topic. Um, development is a very difficult issue, and it takes it took OECD countries a hundred years to go through industrialization. So you can imagine for developing countries it's even harder. But I, you know, you just talked about Ghana. I want to just highlight one initiative in my mind has been a really successful initiative. It is called Oil for Development. It is an initiative that the Norwegian government uh, was trying to transfer the lessons they have learned from sustainably managing their oil resources to Ghana. As as many of you may know, Norway has a national sovereignty fund, which is basically a collection of the the, the revenues from the oil resources. And it took them 25 years to set up the fund, to understand the governance, to know how to collect the money and how the money could be used in order to regenerate revenues for the country. And then it took them 25 days to transfer the lesson to Ghana and to help the Ghana government to set up a similar fund. I think it's, it's, it's you know, in my mind that development cooperation is definitely working. Perhaps the speed may not be as quickly as many of us would have hoped. But again, um, there are a lot of good examples out there, and I don't think we should only highlight the negative ones. We should also try to replicate the successful examples we have seen because only by focusing on the positive ones, the ones actually worked, we could, uh, we could help the world to become a better place. Oh, that is just a perfect <laughs> place to end, Kobus. I mean, we're, I'm not going to ruin that, I promise you. Uh, you know, Shannon, where, where can people find this report if they're interested in, in reading it? Um, it's on our website. Um, actually, um, it's, it's, if you search OECD Green Girls, 
uh, putting green girls at the heart of development, you will find it. Great. Well, I listen. I, I recommend everybody to take a look at it. You know, agree or disagree. What I think Shannon's point is is that it gets a discussion and a dialogue going. You will definitely see. Uh, you know Shannon's more optimistic、uh, point of view, which I think again is also important because unlike me, who focuses much more on the negatives,、uh, it's good to focus on the positives as well. And so,、uh, so Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. Before we go, do you by any chance,、uh, you know, we do a little at the end of every show. We always ask people if they're interested in following you or kind of seeing what you're working on. Do you are you on social media?、Uh, do you yes, have a Twitter、yes. account? We are、uh, as an organization. We actually you can follow us at. OECD Dev. That's the place you will find all the latest development policies. You will find all the resources about how to make donor agencies more efficient. Wonderful. And、so、by please the, follow us. Yes, and、uh, by the way, Cobus、uh, OECD Dev. Is also on SoundCloud, and they just started following us on SoundCloud today. So if you want to、oh, wow. follow,、awesome. uh, if you want to follow the OECD's uh, website, uh, uh, podcasts, and then audio, they're on SoundCloud as well. Hey, Cobus,、uh, where can people follow you and what you're doing? Um, I update our Facebook page. I try to update it daily, and I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesk. That's S T A D E N E S Q U E. And we have had some really, really fiery discussions going on on Facebook the past few days,、um, you know. And so I really invite everybody, Shannon. You know, please do check it out, follow it. It's really, it's a fantastic community. What is interesting about our Facebook page,、uh, since you haven't gone there, is that again, it's eighty-two thousand people now, and the vast majority of them, about eighty. Percent of this community is African between the ages of 18 and 24. So these are young people who are engaged in this conversation in this debate, and I think it's absolutely fantastic. And we're just so excited to have such a robust, dynamic debate going on.、Uh, you can follow me also. You know, with Cobus, we're 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 arguing and we're posting up on Facebook, and also I'm at E Olander on Twitter, E O L A N D E R.、Uh, you can follow me there. I'm updating、uh, almost every day the top headlines from China in Africa. And、uh, and of course we're back again next Sunday with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening.